There's something curious about this broadcast. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. We've made it through January and uh, I need to bring in a certain person onto the show, so I'll just fade up the fader. Mr. Berger, are you there? What? What, what are we on? Are we? Oh, Hi. You're there. I'm here. Just about. <laughs> well, physically anyway. Mentally is another issue. Well, we could all say that. We definitely could all say that. I mean, at the moment for, for today, I think my IQ is about the same as a glass of water, but... Um... <laughs> You're opening yourself up to comment there, but I'll be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. It's too easy. So I think we should go on with the main part of the show, and we will come back in a few moments to talk with you all about all things space. Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their... My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. ...has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. We look back at the Earth and watch it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. An Irishman has won the world porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Go Houston, you're go for landing, over. I got it there, go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy it. We're go, same high, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Beautiful view. Magnificent the next generation of explorers should not ever give up. Space, the final frontier. Final because it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that. Start taking it all for granted. The suits, the ships, the little bubbles of safety as they protect us from the void. But the void is always waiting. This is TGP Nominal. 
So Falcon Heavy, February 6th, baby. That's, yeah. How about that video for the test firing, though? It was pretty amazing. That was so cool. <laughs> I wasn't expecting the, it, was it smoke or is it steam? It's to, actually steam. To go that high. What is it, 27 engines going off? Yeah. That is the sound suppressor in action, which a lot of people don't know that. That's. I mean, it probably is smoke to a degree, but most of that is just steam because of all the water that they shoot underneath to suppress the sound as well as keep the platform cold. Is there anybody who remembers the, the space shuttle program, uh-huh. um, you had that weird kind of whistle sound just before it takes off which is the the sound suppression kicking in yeah well not only that it also cuts out some of the gas that doesn't need to be there it kind of um, eliminates it i was actually just watching a video on that the other day i think they said it was something like twenty-four thousand gallons a second wow or something something crazy like that if it's that loud with the sound suppression mm. what is it without did the... Uh, I'm gathering it did. Did the Saturn V have the sound suppression? Or is that something I'm, that's been added after? I think they all were. That thing? Wow. That wasn't so much of a sound. That was more of a feeling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were people that were watching that live and feeling quite nauseous because, you know, their insides were shaking something chronic. <laughs> But yeah, all 27 engines. So you've got 27 Merlin engines at the base of the rocket, and they should be capable of generating 23,000 kilonewtons of thrust, slightly more than double that of the world's most powerful rocket, which is the Delta IV Heavy, which is operated by United Launch Alliance. It's mm-hmm. the, the rocket is 70 meters tall and is designed to put up a maximum of 64 tons into low Earth orbit. <laughs> wow. It's quite an amazing piece of kit. That is nuts. So that should be Tuesday if all goes well and it's not delayed. Yeah, but you're hearing and seeing the amount of thrust that that thing was kicking out, and it's exciting to hear about it, but you can only now imagine what the BFR will be like as well. Oh, yeah. Wow. (laughs) And people in that area are, man, they're going to need earplugs. Uh Uh-huh. I'm sure. And I'm sure the sales of triple glazing will go up as well. Oh, I think I read that NASA is uh, selling some kind of launch party tickets for like 135 bucks each. I wonder what that's all about. And I take it you get access to the countdown clock from that with those tickets because um, obviously you don't want to be too close. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's still a four mile radius, I think, isn't it, for uh, that kind of launch? Because that's oh, what it's got to be. That's what it used to be for the shuttle, four miles. Here we are. Let's see. Falcon Heavy closer packages, 75 bucks a ticket. They've also got a $35 per ticket. That's all sold out. Even at $135 is, is uh, to me, that still sounds cheap. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying $135. Maybe it's a package. When I heard that, I'm not sure why they said $135. Bucks. That doesn't seem to be the case. So $70. That's even, even yeah. better. Wow. $75. All the $35 are sold out. They've also got a Feel the Heat package. <laughs> that's yeah. the closest you can get to the launch pad. That's also, oh, maybe that was it. That's all sold out. There's no price listed. Maybe that was the 135. Yeah, I would do that. It's also cool to see that NASA is, they seem to be just as excited over this as anyone else is. When you think about it, SpaceX is kind of a competitor. It is and it isn't. I mean, yeah, I know. It's, I mean, SpaceX are doing things for NASA. I mean, they're getting yeah. 
science up to the space station for them and stuff. It's an exciting time. I mean, it's almost like back in the Apollo era. It's almost like that. Yeah. I mean, at least I won't have to be up at four o'clock in the morning to watch it like I would have done if I was there for the moon landings. I mean, they said February 6th, but do they actually have a, a time schedule yet? Uh, I- 6.30 p.m. UTC. Okay, so that'd be 1.30 p.m. here. Mm-hmm. That's not too bad. Make sure to catch that after lunch. Elon Musk put up a couple of posts about it um, saying, oh, we should be doing something in about a week or so. <laughs> And then that was confirmed by one of their official spokespersons. So it's definitely, at the moment, taking place on the 6th of February. Nice. Talking of SpaceX, (laughs) an amateur astronomer that was hunting the Zuma satellite that SpaceX may or may not have lost turned up signals from a NASA satellite that had been thought to be dead since 2005. Zuma went missing after separation from its SpaceX Falcon 9 launcher uh, last month, and um, like many amateur sky watchers, Scott Tilly has since tried to locate the super-secret satellite. During that search, he instead received signals from NASA's image, or imager for magnetopause to Aurora Global Exploration Satellite. Tilly's discovery has been confirmed by the Goddard Space Flight Center. As Tilly wrote, upon reviewing the data from January 20th, 2018, I noticed a curve in the consistent with a satellite in high Earth orbit on the 2275.905 megahertz. It's not Zuma. I set to work to identify the source. As I reviewed another chunk of spectrum a bit lower in frequency, I was greeted by a much stronger carrier and what appeared to be data sidebands. The signature he captured has a 2270.505 MHz carrier with sidebands at plus 1.7 MHz. Tilly believes that image is still spinning at close to its operational value with a period of around 175 seconds. The design value was 120 seconds. He suggested that the satellite's unnoticed revival was a classic turn it off and turn it on again scenario. (laughs) Yeah, classic IT. Thank you, Windows. That's what we've gotten used to. (laughs) So meaning that the communication system had got a reboot and eventually woke it back up. Uh-huh. And they speculate that this happened as early as May last year, but they didn't know it was it was operational. Actually, uh, I read that it could have been as long as five years ago. Really? Yeah, because what I saw was that uh, it resets itself when it orbits Earth, and its solar panels are eclipsed for an extended time, draining the battery and so forth. And uh, it, it does say such eclipses occurred last year, but also five years ago. It could have been phoning home all this time. But did you actually go to see his blog? No. It's amazing. He shows all of the screens and and the telemetry data and the audio frequency responses that he was getting. He went through just about everything that showed this satellite and how he located it. It's amazing the detail he went into. As I say, this guy is an amateur astronomer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. You should see all the stuff that he has. And, And it's just screenshots of all the software he uses and just step by step how he finally identified what this is. It's really cool. It might be over our heads on some areas, but it's still really cool to read. That is what you call a hobby. Oh, yeah. (laughs) My little, lovely Saturn V Lego rocket sitting here on my desk right next to me. Well, there have been some attempts to add some other Lego items in there, uh, one of which was 
a, uh, a supplement to this little rocket. <laughs> little rocket, I say, as it's one meter tall. That was meant to be the launch pad for it. So it would have been an add-on to make it complete, if you want to look at it that way. So that was put in. You know, it's one of those things where people can submit it, and then other people vote on it. If it gets 10,000 votes, then that's enough to have it submitted to the folks at LEGO for further analysis to determine if they want to sell it or not. Uh, another one was a space shuttle. That uses the same scale as Saturn V, so that would have been big. Yeah. The space shuttle plus the external tank and the rocket boosters and so forth. But regrettably, for reasons that I'm just baffled by, LEGO has decided that neither of them are good enough to be become items to be sold. The launch pad for the Saturn V I get. The Majesty is the rocket, because that's what actually went up to the moon. The launch pad, it would have been cool to have. I probably would have gotten it just for completion's sake. But I can see why they would have discounted that one. I don't get the space shuttle. That one I do not get, especially if it would have been a shuttle pretty much the same size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that probably would have been like 250 maybe 300 bucks. I still would have bought that thing. I'll tell you another uh, one that didn't make it as well, the ISS. That didn't make it? I thought that did make it to the next round. Uh, as far as I know, it, it didn't make it, because the, there has been a discussion about it on Twitter. I might be wrong, but I'm sure I read into it that uh, it didn't make it. Uh, of the seven projects that qualified for a review from September to January, none are spaceflight related. So yeah, the ISS was also part of the initial thing. So yeah, nothing space-related for the next round. Which is just like, really? When you consider that they still have to manufacture the Saturn V because there are still people who want the thing, and their Women of NASA was one of their fastest-selling kits ever. The demand for space-related items is clearly there. And ULA and SpaceX, they're just feeding this demand that clearly people have. Unfortunately, they don't say why they discount them. It would be nice if they did, because then people who are going to submit something again could say, well, they didn't go for it this time, so I'll refine it to go for whatever criteria they want. It would be nice if they did that. Otherwise, it's just, well, I have no idea why they rejected it, which is kind of dumb. But, yeah, nothing space-related for the next round. I, I don't get it. The demand is clearly there. <sighs> I looked up all of the ones that were rejected for this round of the ideas. Dude... You've got to be kidding me. What are the people at Lego smoking? One of them is, this. I guess this is like a modification of the Eurofighter. It's an NF-15B research aircraft. I mean, it's a cool-looking aircraft. Doesn't I don't think it's a Yankee aircraft, though. But the other one, Cloud City, where Vader announces that I am your father. And that would be so easy to produce as well. I mean, it's just, that was rejected as well. And... <laughs> They went for a Christmas story house, RuPaul's Brick Race. Really? Uh, yes, yeah, well, that's, which is automatically going to alienate like half of Americans. The Dive Shop, whatever that is. A Jaguar-type E Roadster. Okay, that's actually kind of cool looking. The Lighthouse, which, okay, it looks like a cool little lighthouse. I can go with that one. Boathouse Diner and a pop-up book. A pop-up book. A pop-up book. A pop-up book beat one of the most iconic scenes in sci-fi history, one really cool-looking aircraft, and two space-related items. You have got to be kidding me! And then they end up having to let people go because they're not selling enough? I can't imagine why. Not that I'm slightly bitter about this, mind you. you Wow. What I really want out of LEGO, just classic LEGO. 
not one of these sets where you can only make one thing out of it. Do you know what I mean? Because there's a lot of them where it's sure. only for that thing. Where you back in the day where you just had a big box of Lego and your imagination. I mean, you can do that. You can, uh, I know that the Lego store that I was at out in Minnesota, which is just freaking humongous, they had a wall, just an entire wall that was nothing but individual bricks categorized. Was that the, like the big goldfish bowl thing stuck on yeah. the wall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just pick what you want. That's kind of cool. But, I mean, really? A pop-up book? Mm. Those are the seven qualifying projects. But a space shuttle and the most ridiculous curveball in Star Wars Legacy was also rejected. <laughs> My brain hurts, Mark. Help. Bringing a new meaning to the phrase dancing on air, a nightclub operator is throwing a party in zero gravity with top DJs playing in the aircraft used to train astronauts. The nightclub billed as the first of its kind in conditions resembling space will take off on February the 7th in Frankfurt with 20 clubbers representing all continents dancing or at least floating to the beats. <laughs> the party however will be brief. <laughs> you no kidding. Yeah. The modified Airbus A310, which helps European astronauts adapt to weightlessness, will return to Frankfurt after 90 minutes, with only 25 minutes spent in zero gravity. The head of Big City Beats, a Frankfurt company known for setting up nightclubs in unlikely places, said he pursued the idea because, well, it hadn't been done. <laughs> Artists on the mission, dubbed World Club Dome Zero Gravity, will include Dutch DJ Armin van Buren, one of the top names in trance music, and Los Angeles-based Steve Oki, a major DJ of electronic dance music. A total of 55 people will be on the flight, including crew and two veterans of Zero Gravity environments. Van Buren said that space travel had been something that he wanted to experience at least once, although he acknowledged that he had the jitters even with conventional flying. The DJ, accustomed to seeing fancy footwork on the ground, said he would eagerly watch the dance possibilities in zero gravity I think it will look very funny <laughs> unlike actual space which is silent the plane will have oxygen and therefore sound that would be a bit pointless really wouldn't it <laughs> duh <laughs> no it's going to have carbon dioxide so we'll have sound but everybody will die <laughs> what kind of a line is that <laughs> Oh, oh, wait, it's a Daily Mail. Never mind. <laughs> I get it. That line is just bizarre. <laughs> it will have oxygen, so the people will live. Therefore, there will be sound. Well, no kidding. <laughs> I've also I'm got... sorry. That would just... That, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to work... I, I know you've got these new turntables that you don't actually need vinyl to actually um, stuff with. What I'm imagining, though, if they have got vinyl, <laughs> that, you know... <laughs> It's just going to float away. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how that actually works. And there are record players out there that read by laser instead of by a needle. Yeah, that's true. There are. But thank God for the oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> the people that were actually 
taking part were part of a competition. So the trip will be free, including travel expenses to France. Oh, wow. So be That's at least cool. That would be interesting to see how that goes. Some people are not too great with that kind of environment, and you're trying to dance around. I mean, I can imagine there being a few... Uh, when I say accidents, I'm, I'm talking about... You know the free gift that you get given when you go on those um, flights? Do you know about that? No. Well, you get a free gift if you don't use it. <laughs> Oh, you get to keep the barf bag. <laughs> yeah, and it actually says on it, I survived the vomit comet. <laughs> nice. See, I would get that and write on the underside, thank God for the air. <laughs> the state of journalism in the 21st century. <laughs> know that I'm a big fan of 3D. I'm a big fan of VR. Yeah. I also do like augmented reality. We're getting there, though. There are obstacles to augmented reality. I mean, we are. We, I guess we are there. Pokemon Go is an augmented reality thing, you know, because you're actually walking around and you're seeing Pokemon on your screen as you go to pick them up. Yeah. I don't play it, but I've seen it. Well, a company called Astro Reality has come out with a more uh, educational version uh, for AR, and it they actually sell these little replicas of the moon, really, really detailed replicas, about the size of uh, uh, maybe like a softball. Do you have? Do you know what an American softball size is? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of grapefruit size. Yeah, more like the size of a grapefruit. So you buy this model, and it's 3D printed, so it actually is very accurate to everything because it gets its information from the uh, lunar orbiter so it's got all the details for all the craters and so forth on the moon but then when you load their app on your phone and you hold the this scale model of the moon in front of it it knows what it's looking at so it will be able to identify all of the craters it'll be able to identify historical spots that are on the moon that you're looking at at the time all through your phone so you can just you know turn it around in your hand and the app will respond by displaying information about what it's looking at. It's a really cool looking app. You're able to bring up photos. It can identify various craters. It can identify various, you know, the flat surfaces. All of the, the physical detail. Yeah. It can identify just by holding it in front of your phone while the app is running. It's wow. a really, really cool thing to look at. The moon itself is $220, although you can get smaller versions of it for as little as $40. And then the app is simply an iOS or Android app. You install it on your phone and there you go. You know, it can, it can identify all the landing spots and all of that just by holding it right in front of your phone while the app is running. There's a, another company out there called Zapbox. I don't know if you've heard of Zapbox. I, I think it was a, a Kickstarter program to begin with, but it's what they call mixed reality mm -hmm. rather than augmented reality. And basically, it's similar to Google Cardboard, um, but you've got all these cardboard things that you have, which you have to put these little sensor things, cardboard sensors around your room, mm -hmm. and you can play games and stuff in your living room. So you can play like That's crazy golf. Cool and all that kind of stuff yeah, on there. Yeah, that. that's neat. They can call it mixed all they want. It's still augmented reality. Mm -hmm. If it's CGI on top of what's actually out there, it's augmented reality. But the, the difference between this and Google Cardboard is it, it's got a special lens that you put on top of your 
the lens of your camera on the phone, mm-hmm. which gives you a wider range of view. So right. that when you're playing the games, it makes it easier to play. But for, I think it was about $30, something like that, that's cheap. I know it's mainly all cardboard, but yeah, the things you can do with it, it's yeah. amazing. That is cool. And I'm a big fan. I love Google Cardboard. That I'm, is so much fun. I'm, I'm contemplating buying one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty cool looking. I like that. There's a more professional thing on uh, for it as well, so you can um, use it in, um, not in surgery, but for training for surgery and that kind of thing. Obviously, the more you pay for it, the more advanced it is. And it's also good for, you know, working in architecture and all that kind of stuff as well. So there is professional sides of it as well as just the, the leisure yeah. part of it. But I, I really like it. For the money, I don't think you can go wrong with that. No, that is, that is really inexpensive. I see you got those little, whatever you want to call those diagrams, that you stick around the walls mm-hmm. so that they it's used to orient it so the software knows where the boundaries are and things oh that's neat and it also comes with these little cardboard controllers as well so your hands can move things around uh, one of the things it's got in there is a, is a virtual xylophone which is quite, huh. kind of funny well that's good because then we don't have to have the you know everybody else in the room hearing when you mess up <laughs> <laughs> That is neat, and the educator's version with 10 of them. Mm, that would be awesome for science lessons. Yeah. Okay, painting, mini golf, dancing, xylophone, and explore Mars. There you go. That is neat. And yeah, that looks a lot like Google Cardboard. Yeah, apart from it's got the hole at the back where you can mm-hmm. view. Okay, so I guess that's just a regular kind of fisheye lens that snaps on. Yeah, pretty much. That's cool. And it's yeah, adjustable as well, so it'll fit on most phones. Mm-hmm. They, we have a TV show here called The Gadget Show, which is quite obvious what it's about. Mm. And that was on there. And it, I thought, oh, I bet this is expensive. And it came up with a price, and I was, wow. Yeah. I need to look it, into this. <laughs> yeah, they even uh, compare themselves with other options. Magic Leap, HoloLens, Oculus Rift, Vive. That's cool. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be the quality of HoloLens or any of those, but for the money, no. it's a good starting point. Oh, yeah, especially when even the next cheapest option... Well, I guess the next cheapest option is Google Cardboard. They seem to be they seem to be uh, issuing that in favor of Google Daydream, which is 80 bucks right there. As long as you have a modern phone, so then you have to pay however many hundred for a compatible phone. I would love to get the Vive, but, man, 800 bucks? Whew, that's nasty. Yeah, that's expensive. And then HoloLens is 3000 I don't think so. I'm going to have to consider supporting that one myself. Mm-hmm. I, was that on Kickstarter? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, Kickstarter. That's the only way you can purchase it, so... That's interesting. Still, that that's cool. I like that one. Did you see what uh, Nintendo's al- announced? It's the same kind of thing, but they use the Switch, and they call it Labo. I'm yes. Sure why. I have seen but, that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just a whole bunch of cardboard, which is fine. I, people seem to have a problem with that. I don't understand why. As long as it's durable, and because what I find is that the people who are getting upset with Labo are not the target audience anyway, so quit your complaining. <laughs> but it's a cheap, cheap way of doing this kind of stuff, and it works. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it just you've got the Switch, and you can use the Switch to become a whole bunch of different things based on what you put them in. And there's a whole bunch of cardboard to put together, which is fun for the kids to actually be able to put it together. Is it a kit that you can do different things with the kit, or yes. do you have to buy different kits? Uh, that hasn't been announced, but considering that it's 70 bucks, it better not be 70 bucks for each one 
considering it's just cardboard. Yeah. But I mean, granted, that's not so much augmented reality. That's just something cool to do with cardboard. But still, it's it's among the you know the same kind of thing, simulating mm-hmm. doing something with the Nintendo Switch. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it. You love it. You can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn. There's been a, a little bit of a flurry of small launches in the process of making their way to the market. And uh, Silicon Valley startup Rocket Lab uh, launched its latest rocket recently, which was a superb launch. Did you see the launch of that? No, I didn't. Because of the temperament of the, the weather in uh, New Zealand where it's actually launched there's a lot of weather issues there so it gets scrubbed quite regularly but it recently launched and made it into orbit the original launch was called let me get this right the mission was called Just Testing the original (laughs) one Uh, the one that will launch recently is called Still Testing (laughs) And it's on their mission patches and everything. I need to get one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so this is Rocket Lab, and they launched their Electron vehicle. And the the latest one took three CubeSats into orbit, but that's not the only thing that it launched. The main payload for this mission was kept secret until about a week after the launch and has been revealed as a satellite that the Rocket Lab company has named the Humanity Star. Now, the Humanity Star looks like a giant disco ball, but by all accounts, the object should be visible to the naked eye as it sweeps across the twilight sky. It was lofted from uh, North Island uh, on New Zealand. The company said that the Humanity Star was an attempt to create a shared experience for everyone on planet Earth. No matter where you are in the world or whatever is happening in your life, everyone will be able to see the Humanity Star in the night sky, said Rocket Lab CEO Peter Beck in a statement. My hope is that all those looking up at it will look past it to the vast expanse of the universe and think a little differently about their lives, actions, and what is important for humanity. Did you hear there was actually a backlash to that? Yeah, there always is on these. I was like, really? I forget. I didn't read the article because I just rolled my eyes and went past it, but the headline was something like that that object is going to be bad for astronomy. I was like, what? Wh- whatever. Just... I went right past it. I mean, I, there was when I put a post up on the UK Astronomy Group, there was a couple of people complaining that they've got to wait 31 days to see it. But the only reason wow. for that is at the moment we're in a bad area to see it because of the atmospherics and what have you. But in 31 days, there'll be hopefully, depending on cloud and everything else, uh, a good view of it. Well, that I get, but that at least shows that people are enthusiastic and they want to see it. Mm-hmm. But based on this one headline, they were making it sound like just putting this thing up there that doesn't do anything except reflect a lot of light it's going to be bad for astronomy what are you crazy if it gets people to look up it can only how be is good. it bad it can only be good for astronomy rocket lab said that the humanity star will not be up for long the the sphere's orbit is expected to decay over the coming months as it brushes through the extended high atmosphere eventually it will fall to an altitude where it will burn up but you can visit www.com 
thehumanitystar.com to track where in the world the Humanity Star is passing over right now. Jonathan McDowell, a satellite tracker and astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, commented, The irony is that it's poorly placed for observation right now, low on the horizon for evening passes in New Zealand, and not visible from the USA until March if it stays up there that long so it's going to be a bit hit or miss yeah but the idea is for your first proper payload I, I thought it was a beautiful idea I think it's a cool idea again if it makes people look up and it's not going to be there permanently what's the big deal why is this somehow more offensive than any other space junk that's up there I don't get that. I mean, there is things up there have been up there for decades. Yeah. And it's just, as you say, it's junk. No good to anyone at this present point in time. It probably could be, at some point, got hold of and recycled, but uh, sure, sure. Uh, that's a little way off yet. I guess it's a purist viewer or something. It doesn't do anything. It just shines up there. Well, I think one person said, like, it obscures the view of the cosmos. It's like, really? I see a really, really, really big sky up there. Mm-hmm that is not going to be obscured by this little teeny tiny streak that's across. I mean, you could say that every time the ISS goes around, though. Yeah, and this thing is microscopic compared to the ISS. Talking of which, did you see that picture I put up on the Facebook page? There is a picture of the ISS flying past the moon. Yes, I've seen that a couple of times. This one is at a certain angle that it actually looks like the Starship Enterprise. Oh, no, okay, no, that one I haven't seen. And um, George Takei actually saw it and he went, oh my, that looks remarkably like a ship that I once flew on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) Uncle George. (laughs) Nah, there are a lot of cool photos like that, though. It's amazing that people calculate exactly where they have to be to get that kind of shot. Oh, yeah. It's just total fluke a lot of the time. It's just... Yeah. You just happen to be at the right place at the right time. But it's a, it is an awesome shot, and it does look like the Enterprise. Okay, I'm going to have to look that one up then. I say Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a few Photoshops in my day. A UK-headquartered company says it's won a contract to send spacecraft to dock with existing satellites to extend their lives. Effective Space will not name the satellites at this stage, only that it is a major regional operator that uh, has asked them to do this. Um, The deal is described as being worth more than $100 million. Effective Space says it has two servicing space drones that will be built using manufacturing expertise in the UK and from across the rest of Europe. The pair, which will be sized about the same as a washing machine and weigh less than 400 kilograms, are expected to launch on the same rocket sometime in 2020. Once in orbit, they will separate and attach themselves to two different geostationary telecommunication satellites that are almost out of fuel. The drones, using their own propulsional systems, will then take over station-keeping duties. 36,000 kilometers above the earth ensuring that the satellites can operate to a point in the right direction to transmit their signals satellite servicing has been talked about as a commercial enterprise for more than a decade but it is only now that the first projects are really coming to the market the American operator Intelsat, for example is buying a similar service from the manufacturer Orbital ATK 
The London-based company's initial focus is on station keeping, but future markets for similar types of servicing vehicle will almost certainly open up for satellite removal. Orbits above the Earth are becoming congested. Old and broken hardware needs to be brought out of the sky if the environment is to remain stable. Effective space is part of the wave of so-called new space companies that have sprung up over recent years. Their goal is to drive novel business opportunities and applications off the back of lower cost systems in large part by the greater use of off-the-shelf consumer electronics and step-changing manufacturing techniques such as 3D printing. It is an approach that has found fertile ground in, in Britain with supporting government policies promoted through the UK Space Agency. This has drawn a number of foreign initiatives to the base themselves in Britain. Effective Space, for example, has its roots in Israel and maintains its research and development facilities there, but the UK is the place it wants to make its operations centre. We are deploying a very innovative service and the way we can do that is by, by being able to reply on a very solid space law and supportive space agency said mr campbell and since the brexit vote actually we are seeing more support and more proactive moves to ensure we are on the right track there is a tailwind in the uk that allows space companies to thrive yeah that seems to be across the board in the space sector actually that ever since brexit the money has actually gone up but it's about one of the only sectors where it has I don't know enough about the politics behind Brexit to be able to comment about that. Uh, you and the UK government, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, the, the space industry in the UK is growing since Brexit, and it's really weird how that's working. I know there's a fear about scientists getting both into and out of the UK because of it. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering whether, because of things that have been happening on your side of the pond, that maybe a few scientists and engineers from the states have come over to the uk because it seems to be a bit more free to actually express themselves where it's a bit difficult for scientists to do that in the states at the moment yeah don't d no not going there <laughs> mm -mm. nope so that's great news and a great idea yeah I mean, they've got to call one of these things Wally. They've got to. It, okay, are you referring to the Pixar? Yeah, or, or Pixar. Okay, just making sure. Wally. Because with you, well, with you Brits, anything's possible. Who knows what you could be referring to? <laughs> See, you're laughing, but you're not denying it. Well, yeah, because <laughs> right, you have a set of books over there called Where's Waldo, right? Yeah. Over here, it's Where's Wally. And I knew that. That's why I was wondering what you were referring to. Because <laughs> with you, again, with you guys, anything's possible. Although there's a Star Wars version of of it where's Chewy? I love that one. Oh, you know what? Speaking of which, uh, have you heard the name Leland Chi? Name rings a bell. Yeah, exactly, because he is like the guy when it comes to maintaining canon and archiving everything in the Star Wars universe right. when it comes to Lucasfilm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why. Yeah, if you're, if, you're familiar, if you're familiar with Star Wars, you probably know Leland Chi. He finally revealed the reason why Disney scrubbed the extended universe. One reason, Chewbacca. I was going to say Jar Jar. No. no, Chewbacca, uh, <laughs> because in canon, in the extended universe, Chewbacca died. And he said that, I mean, obviously there were other reasons, but he was the big one because Disney knew that you cannot have another Star Wars movie without Chewbacca. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to be able to bring Chewbacca back was to say, okay, the extended universe is no longer canon. Considering the source 
I believe it. I, I get you know, that. Because that, that, that's his job. I mean, it's him and who's the other guy? Pablo Hidalgo? Yes, 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 yes. He seems to know the backstory of everything. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't, so, they, they just make it up. They just make up some new stuff. <laughs> yeah. So And they couldn't just say, well, we'll just get rid of the Chewbacca part of the extended universe. Nah, you can't do that. Got to be an all or nothing deal. So that's why they got rid of the extended universe. I, I was up in arms with that originally. But now they are bringing some of the best bits of some of the, can the old canon mm -hmm. into the new canon. That's a great thing. And I, I know we keep yeah. going over the same territory, but I'll just say one name to you. Thrawn. Yeah. Yeah. That was the only reason why I was upset that the that the extended universe was no longer canon. I really wanted to see the Thrawn movie. But now we still can. Yeah. I got to read the new one. Have you read the new one yet? I haven't. I've, I've actually got the audio oh. book. I haven't actually listened to it yet. <laughs> I need to read that. If it's anywhere... I mean, it's still Timothy's on. Mm -hmm. So if it's anywhere near as good as the original trilogy... It's it's going to be amazing. I like the way he works. Mm -hmm. He's a thinking man. Whereas Vader never was. He was no. He was more of Vader a, was just angry. I, I liked that Thrawn always used to say that you can learn a lot about your enemy by the kind of art they have on their wall. Yes. <laughs> that, that was amazing. He is such a good character. Mm. NASA is continuing to look ahead really far ahead I mean we're talking 50 years ahead because JPL in particular they have started to plan a mission to send a spacecraft to Alpha Centauri in the year 2069 2069 2069 wow they are timing it specifically for the 100th anniversary of Apollo 11 yeah you and I will not be seeing it mm -mm. Um, well you know we could we might see it but might not remember it but <laughs> yeah really <laughs> it, it is it is statistically possible that you and I could still be around to see it. Uh -huh. uh, not probable, but possible. But the probe is going to look for signs of life around the potentially habitable exoplanet Proxima B, which they say is giving humanity a much better look than it could get with an observation from home. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the same with any probe. So the reason why they're waiting for so long is very simple. We don't have the technology to do that yet. So they're counting on propulsion technology to advance you know, at that point to where we could get a ship to Alpha Centauri within a reasonable amount of time. So it's 4.4 light years away, which on a cosmic scale, it's basically right next door. And they said that if they could get a ship to move at one-tenth the speed of light, it would take 44 years to, to arrive. Okay, we won't be alive for that one. <laughs> we might be able to see it launch. We'll never see it get there. No. Um, so that means if it does launch, it would reach the system around 2113 and of course it would take the data four and a half years to get back here but nonetheless you know regardless of everything that's going on now jpl is looking that far ahead and they're basically saying we can do it we just need the technology to get us there <laughs> i just need a, a group of 12 year olds to be actually working on the program so that they can be <laughs> old enough you know and and have the faculties <laughs> to be still working hey, you know, on the program. Get that EM engine working. Yeah. I can imagine how many people are rolling their eyes right now. Oh, he won't stop with the EM engine. But there's a lot of them. <laughs> I mean, we've been going on about these ion drives as well, which yeah. are pretty quick. I mean, we, we were talking recently about the multiple uh, ion drives, which, as we mentioned in, in the show, we, we did a comparison with a TIE fighter, which is a twin ion engine. Multiple ion engine. Wow. Wow. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be quick. <laughs> Whoa, they'd have to get a ship to be able to go about 67 million miles an hour. Woof. That's just scary. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to be able to, to survive long enough to see something like that. Mm-hmm. That's really fast, though. <laughs> A discovery by citizen scientists has led to the confirmation of a system of five planets orbiting a far-off star. Furthermore, the planet's orbits are linked to a mathematical relationship called a Renaissance chain, with a pattern that's unique amongst the known planetary systems in our galaxy. The system was found by astronomy enthusiasts using Zooniverse, an online platform for crowd-searching research. People anywhere can log on and learn what real signals from exoplanets look like, and then look through actual data collected from the Kepler telescope to vote on whether or not to classify a given signal as a transit or just noise, said Dr. Jesse Christiansen from Caltech in Pasadena. Since the discovery of the four planets in this system was announced last year, Dr. Christiansen has been working to shed further light on this distant planetary neighbourhood, dubbed K2 dash one three eight this led to the discovery of a fifth planet and then hints of a sixth planet all the worlds are a bit bigger than our own planet ranging between 1.6 and 3.3 times the radius of earth the raw data used in the discovery was provided by the nasa kepler space telescope which identifies potential planets around other stars by looking for dips in the brightness of the stars when the planets pass across their face or transit them which is awesome that just everyday astronomers are actually involved with this project and actually found these planets or, or exoplanets. When you have multiple people being able to look at it, mm-hmm. why not? I mean, hey, it was an amateur guy who found that uh, image satellite. This is why all this data really needs to be out there. And now we've got the computing power. We can just do this stuff. That's why as much as people might laugh at SETI, for stuff like, oh yeah, like there's other intelligent life in the universe. What do you do a waste of your time? Well, whatever. The data's out there. Someone needs to analyze it, and you never know what you might find. I've actually got another story based around your average everyday Joe finding something. A teenager from Sheffield in Yorkshire has contacted scientists at NASA to point out an error in a set of their own data. A-level student Miles Solomon found that the radiation sensors on the International Space Station were required recording false data. The 17-year-old from Tapton School in Sheffield said it was pretty cool to email the space agency. The correction was said to be appreciated by NASA, which invited him to help analyse the problem. Nice! What we got given was a lot of spreadsheets, which is a lot more interesting than it sounds, Miles told Radio 4. The research was part of the Tim Picks program, not Tim Picks, Tim Picks <laughs> project from the Institute of Research in Schools, or IRIS, which gives students across the UK, <laughs> gives kids in the UK a chance to work on data from the space station, looking for anomalies and uh, space patterns that might lead to further discoveries. During UK astronaut Tim Peake's stay on the station, detectors began recording the radiation levels on the ISS. I went straight to the bottom of the list and went for the lowest bits of energy there was, Miles explained. Miles's teacher, head of physics, James O'Neill, said that we were discussing the data, but he just suddenly perked up in one of the sessions and went, why does it say that there is minus one energy here? What Miles had noticed was there was nothing hitting the detector 
a negative reading was being recorded but you can't get negative energy <laughs> so miles and mr o'neill contacted nasa it's pretty cool miles said you can tell your friends i just emailed nasa and they're looking at the graphs that i've made <laughs> Nice. It turned out that Miles had noticed something no one else had, including NASA's experts. NASA said that they were aware of the error, but believed it was only happening once or twice a year. Miles had found that it was actually happening multiple times a day. Oh, wow. That's uh, uh, slightly significant. Yeah, just a little bit. Professor Larry Pinsky from the University of Houston told Radio 4, my colleagues at NASA thought they'd clean that up. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> this underscores I think what the values of iris projects in all fields with big data i'm sure there's something interesting that the students can find that the professionals don't have time to do mm -hmm. the professor who works with nasa on radiation monitors said that the correction was appreciated more than it being embarrassing <laughs> So what do Miles' friends think of this discovery? They obviously just think I'm a nerd. He said, <laughs> it's, it's really a mixture of jealousy and boredom when I tell them about the details. There you go. He added, I'm not trying to prove that NASA was wrong. I want to work with them and learn from them. Director of the IRIS project, Professor Becky Parker, said that this sort of expansion of real science in the classroom could attract more young people to STEM subjects. She said, IRIS brings real scientific research to the hands of the students, no matter their background or the context of their school. The experiences inspires them to become the next generation of scientists. And this is what it's all about. That's it. I mean, all they have to do is just get that little seed planted that, hey, I found something NASA didn't, and they responded positively to it. Yeah. And I mean, that's a great way to get them interested in it. He's kind of got a, his foot in the door with NASA now. So yeah. this could be a big future for him. Although, you know, the, one of the comments to that article, because I looked it up while you were talking about it. I'm sorry, this is funny. Can't have negative energy? He's never seen me at work with a hangover. <laughs> 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 or for me, it's just a Monday morning, you know. Now, that's cool. That is really, you must be really excited now. Yeah, I actually got alerted to this story by Alan Taylor Shearer himself, who said, hey, this is a kid from my old school. <laughs> oh, so it was just pride in his own school. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tooting his school's horn. <laughs> <laughs> Once you're born in Yorkshire, you stay Yorkshire. That's that's the way it is. Okay, They're well. very proud of their county. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Okay. They call it God's own country. <laughs> okay, the ego's a little bit high there, isn't it? <laughs> it's a beautiful part of the country, I'll give them that. <laughs> yes, but we have a song that says, God bless America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way to dismiss it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, my. We have fun, ladies and gentlemen. You can see that or hear that. Can't see it. We're not a video podcast. <laughs> yeah, that'll be scary thought. <laughs> what, us doing a video podcast? Oh, yeah. Oh, dear God, no. No, 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 no. They'd be like, that's what they look like? <laughs> be glad that we don't live in China because apparently it is not uncommon for them to launch rockets and have the residuals of those launches just land wherever, including right near people's towns and villages. A uh, Chinese rocket booster fell near a small town in southwest China where it exploded and caught fire. Uh, it was one of the four strap-on boosters used for China's Long March 3B rocket. It had just launched two satellites into orbit, and... Uh, <laughs> 
they just fell to the earth and just started burning right there near the village. Apparently, this is normal because the platform that they launched these rockets from is several hundred miles inland. Apparently, during the Cold War, they apparently were not really liked between either the United States or Russia, so they didn't want to have any of their launching capabilities near the shore. So they moved them hundreds of miles inland, but that means during any takeoff, things are going to land on the ground. There's no real way to avoid it. So... (laughs) People caught video of the booster as it fell, and it erupted into flames. Then they ran up to it to film it close up. Yeah, you do get people do stuff like that. Which is just ridiculously dangerous. Now, China says they are designated drop zones, just big areas where they expect it to land, and they should be free of any problems. But nonetheless, when it's close enough to a town that you can run up and start taking video of it, I mean, those rockets... Even though they're mostly spent by then, they still contain very toxic chemicals like hydrazine. Oh, yeah. You know, and things like that, which is not just dangerous if you get it on you. It's dangerous if you inhale it. Mm-hmm. So it'll kill you now and later. Yeah. Still, even at that, the, the residue from it and the fact that it's on fire is <laughs> slightly a problem. People just run right up and get their camera phones out and just start taking video of it. I mean, you look at these idiots that go somewhere where there's some volcanic corruption or something and they will be filming yeah. the lava flow and then wonder why uh, it's moving quicker than they can run. Yeah. This has actually killed people because back in 1996, another long March 3B rocket took off straight off course and when it came down, it destroyed dozens of homes, injured 57 people and killed six. So granted they have a new launch site which is actually on the island of Hainan in the South China Sea, so at least they've got that one and that's where their newer rockets take off from but still, it, it was amazing to just watch this rocket come down, crash and then, or at least the boosters for it and people just run up to it while it's on fire the only thing going through my mind is yes, that's cool, but are you freaking nuts? But the thing, Do you want your lungs to disintegrate? It doesn't make sense in a country like China where most of the um, the cities are on the outskirts, if you like, and there's a lot of... It's a bit like Australia where there's nothing in the middle. Right. And you'd think that that would be the best place to have them because if it lands anywhere, it's just going to land in the equivalent of a desert. Right. Like Kazakhstan. <laughs> yeah, you know, you'd think. But, I mean, granted, the scientific curiosity of, oh, wow, it's a rocket booster. But then the self-preservation of, oh, my God, the chemical in there could kill me in an instant. Okay, maybe you not you an look instant, at the, the warnings that NASA gave out with um, the Columbia disaster. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you had bits of the shuttle that had scattered around Texas, wasn't it? Yeah, scattered yeah. around Texas, Louisiana. And they were given warnings if you see any of it. Obviously, they wanted to get it back because they needed to work out what had gone wrong. But, sure. you know, don't go near it because it could be toxic. Yeah, there were countless warnings about that. Yeah, and then you've got idiots who find a part and decide, we're going to sell this on eBay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not the brightest bulb in the pack. No. So I think we've pretty much rounded up everything that's going on in the space industry at the moment. So what I think we'll do is we'll have a break, and when we come back, it's time for our resident astronomer, Ross Ockham. Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov LRO and follow us on Twitter, at LRO underscore NASA. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. 
But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. Well, it's that time of the month again where we ask our resident astronomer, Ross Hockham, to come on board and tell us about what's happening in the skies for February. How are you doing, sir? Really good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, it's been a really busy January. <laughs> yeah, same here. We've had loads of emails about doing events and things. You've had loads of people as well, by the sounds of it. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of people approaching us and a lot of research into future events and venues and things uh, of, of stuff that's going on. You know what they say about um, striking the iron while the fire's hot kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully we can bring some great stuff to the show from that. So what have you got for us? Uh, well, it's February now, isn't it? So we're being February and it pretty much starts off straight at the beginning of the month. But this is something that lasts kind of through the month anyway, so you don't have to go out on the 1st. But on the 1st of Feb, you've got Sears and it, uh, it actually reaches opposition which means it's kind of slightly brighter than it would be normally in its orbit around uh, and it'll be easier to spot as it is pretty much opposite the sun as viewed from earth so it's almost like we're in a line so it makes it a lot easier to see Ceres itself is uh, it's actually the largest object in the asteroid belt because there's a nice asteroid belt that lies between Mars and Jupiter I say nice <laughs> if any of those bits come our way which they have been lately by the looks of what I've seen on Facebook and stuff mm-hmm. almost every other week one's flying by uh, yeah it's a nice asteroid field as long as one doesn't crash into Earth <laughs> but yeah you'll get to uh, see this it's between Mars and Jupiter and it's going to slowly move across the tip of Cancer so throughout the month if you look around the top of Cancer it's a constellation it's the crab it's going to be at around magnitude 7 they're saying give or take so you're probably going to need a telescope to see it or spot it I mean it is actually a dwarf planet now isn't it it's classed as because it's almost it's, it's, yeah it's the biggest I think it might be bigger than Pluto and stuff I, like I that I think it is yeah yeah so it's, it's, it's big but not as big as you know an actual planet which is why it's dwarf and the best way to see it is to actually have a look at where all the stars are around that area maybe even you know draw them or take a picture if you've got a phone camera you might be able to use your iPhone with uh, I think there's something called Nightcap or Nightcap Pro which helps bring the stars out it's an app you can get do that one night and then wait a night or two or do it the next night pop out again have a look at the same part of the sky and you might see that one of the stars or one of the white dots there seems to have slightly moved a bit it might take a couple of nights and if it has that is probably going to be says because it is pretty much just a white dot that moves against the uh, background of the stars over the course of a few days so it generally means if you see something like that or you notice it when you're out looking or doing astronomy or just gazing you've probably spotted an asteroid or a dwarf planet or maybe even pluto if you're really lucky so that's the best way people say to actually find it you can use apps to have a look and see the white dots and then gauge hang on a minute right that's a star that's a star that one's saying it's there that must be it 
because you can get like a shape of the stars that you can see but it's more fun why not go out and try it over a few nights because then you can actually see how it's moving and where it's moving and what's going on so you can actually see a large chunk of rock that's shooting through space that's part of an asteroid field so to me i think that's pretty cool and you know if it gets you out throughout the month going and having a look at our skies why not so yeah it's just above the constellation cancer which is the crab while you're there if you have got a pair of binoculars or maybe a wider eyepiece you'll probably need 25 mil or more they do go up higher than that like 40 mil and stuff like that the higher you go the more sort of field of view you've got so if you move down from the top of cancer it's almost like an x in the sky with a straight line in between so it's not quite an x but if you move down to the middle of it it's a nice open cluster the best thing is with binoculars you get a nice field of view you can get them all to fit in and what i like about this it's called the beehive cluster and it's meant to look like lots of busy bees around a hive which i must admit i've never actually seen it look like that but what's fantastic is there's so many different colors of stars there and that pretty much shows you while you're looking there you can see almost like the life cycle of them you can see the reds the whites the yellows blues it's just an amazing cluster to be able to see that contrast of colors and what all the stars are and you know how different they actually can be rather than just looking at the odd one or two boring that's blue that's blue red means they're pretty much on their way out and they might explode the whites and the blues are the young ones and the yellows and that are kind of like middle-aged yeah and they're all there all together now what were you were saying there about you can't really make out what it is this this this, uh, this cluster and a lot of these constellations sometimes are a little bit like looking at do you remember those magic eye puzzles yeah the longer you look at it the more you can see it yeah some of them are a little bit like looking at one of those <laughs> definitely there's, there's some you just look up i mean what's the one is, is it canis minor just literally just like two stars of a line between Oh, the one that's supposed uh, to represent a dog. Dogs like chasing sticks. Maybe that's got well, something to do. Well, yeah, yeah, that could be it. There's, there's Canis Major's probably not far away, so maybe it's actually a stick. And the other dog, the dog's, the dog's trying to chase stick. it. Because <laughs> they do say that he's, they're meant to both be chasing... Uh, it's Lepus, isn't it, or Lepus, which is below Orion, which mm. is a, uh, a hare or a, a rabbit. Yeah. But it's, it's, I like the stick. Let's go for the stick. Let's let's just change the world of astronomy as we know it. Because it comes let's from go. the from the Latin for rabbit, which is similar to the French word lapin, yeah. which is which is French for for rabbit. Ah, cool. See, so, I've learned something there. I'm meant to be teaching you, and I've actually learned. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So people, there is a place out. I think there's a Facebook group or something. They they are saying, why not make your own constellations? Go out there, have a look at the stars, and get kids to just draw their own. Been a few, haven't there? Um, because there's that whale constellation that, that some kids came up with. Yeah, it was last month, wasn't it, when I was saying that there was a constellation where that meteor shower came from, which is uh, one of them was seen, wasn't it, at the beginning of the month? Yeah. And that's now non-existent. So there's a nice gap there. <laughs> Every time something explodes, it creates other things, doesn't it? Because it pushes, mm. pushes other things out of proportion, so therefore other constellations can be found. Yeah, and also, in like as the years go on, actually the stars do move just very slowly that, that you know i won't notice it in my lifetime but they're going to be completely different in a million years compared to you know how they look today oh yeah so they won't even look like that so people will probably make up new constellations just from that why not go and have a look at cancer the crab which funnily enough doesn't really even look like a crab either does it it just looks like a kind of an elongated x yeah pretty much so yeah you can make your own thing up. i'm guessing it's probably representing its claws up mm-hmm then it's feet down but yeah have a peek there have a look see what you can do if you can't see the beehive and all the bees around it make your own up 
who knows you guys have already done that I mean uh, we've mentioned it in a previous episode with the Johnny Five cluster which yes. wasn't originally called that but it that does look like cluster. it <laughs> yeah yeah but you take a picture I'm going to have to pop that on the Facebook group again now or something so they can see it that was good that was really good I enjoyed that but yeah, now back to what's going on. Uh, if you keep an eye on the moon from about the 7th, each morning, it will be in the morning, so you will have to get up early, unfortunately. Grab yourself a coffee and pop out there. Uh, you will see that it's almost going to, throughout the next few days from the 7th, it will seem to almost move backwards in the sky towards the sun. Uh, it's going to slowly wane as well, so it's going to turn into a crescent. And on the 8th, it will appear near Jupiter. So it's a good signpost to see where Jupiter is in the morning. They're not that high. They're high enough to see them. I've been out of my garden i can see them quite clearly jupiter and mars and the moon should be quite decent as well but we're not in a great position as i said in orbit yet until june or july i keep banging on about that because i'm really excited about that when we get there it'll be a great views and then from the 8th have a look at jupiter on the 9th it then slips back to mars so you'll be able to see ah the moon is now near mars so that red dot near it hopefully should be mars and then from there it will then slip back again to Saturn. So Saturn will be really low, and if you do have a look at it, don't be disheartened if you can't make out rings and things because we're not in a great position and it is low. So you're looking for a lot of atmosphere. But with the naked eye, be able to see Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn as the moon moves along to a thin crescent, if you can make that out as well. It's a great signpost for you to spot those three planets and perhaps watch them change and move over the next few months. And if we move on to the 10th, so you should know where Mars is now because you saw it on the 9th using the, the moon. It's actually above the red giant Antares. Now, the name Antares or Antares, or however you want to say it, uh, in history actually means anti-airs or anti-airs, which means anti-Mars or rival of Mars. Our ancestors probably called it this probably because it does actually appear really red in the sky. So just like Mars does, and it might even be brighter, I'm not sure. I'm going to go and have a look myself and see. Often, as it does on this date, the 10th, it does actually appear quite close to the red planet itself. So it's a great time to pop out and see if you think it's redder or not have a look have a look at Antares or Antares uh, it's also known as the heart of the Scorpion because it is placed right in the heart of Scorpius so a nice red star right there in the heart of this, the heart of a scorpion and go and see see the contrast of colors to see how red it is is it brighter than mars should it be the new mars who knows it's technically no because it's not a planet but <laughs> in the sky you could mistake it for it you never know if we move forward to the 15th uh, it's new moon and we all know what that means. Dark yep. sky time. I mean, the moon's out of the way. You've got a great opportunity either side of this date, probably five days either side, to go out there, see galaxies, nebula, fainter objects. If you haven't seen the Orion Nebula yet, do it, because I keep banging on about it. It's really worth seeing. Loads of stuff out there to go and see. So the 15th, around that area, as long as it's not cloudy, go out and have a look at some cool stuff out there. Now, if we move to the 21st, there is a comet. I've not seen or heard much about it myself, but... It's, uh, it's moving through Pegasus, the constellation, which is the flying horse that uh, Perseus, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Perseus rode to kill the Kraken, or Cetus, I think they now call it. In the sky, there's actually a constellation called Cetus, which is a sea monster. The comet itself is called 2017 T1 Hines. So I'll just call it Heinz, like the uh, the baked beans. Uh, on this date, it reaches the point where it's nearest to the sun. Although last month it passed Earth and is moving away from us, it should actually brighten a bit because it's, it's right next to the sun now, technically. And it should be bright enough to be able to see with a decent scope. 
I'm not sure about binoculars, but why not have a look? Uh, it should have a slight tail, they're saying, because it, is, it has got close to the sun. It's starting to sort of like melt. So a tail is being left where the sun interacts with it, melting it. So why not have a look at that? If you can see a comet with a tail there, I mean, we'll be, we'll be posting it in our Facebook group. I'll be keeping an eye on it and seeing where it's going through Pegasus. So when I get some more info on that one, I'll, I'll let you know. It's in uh, some of the magazines as well, so you can find out the route it's taking. But why not pop and have a look at a comet that's getting burnt by the sun? Uh, on the 23rd, unless you've got a good certified sun filter or a hydrogen alpha scope, there's not much really that you can see during the day. There's only really our kind of sun and the sunspots and the flares that you get from that. But on the 23rd, on this date, if you keep an eye on the moon at around about 4.30pm, it will move in front of the star Aldebaran or Aldebaran which is the eye of the ball in Taurus, which is a constellation of the ball. It'll make the star seem to kind of just disappear behind it. So the moon's actually, you're gonna actually be able to see the moon moving across in front of a star. It will be reappearing again at around about 5.45. So you've got a good bit of time there to pop see it, then go and have a cup of tea, make some dinner or something, and pop out again and see it reappear. So that's something, you know, a bit fun that you can see during the daylight hours rather than always having to be out in the, the cold, winter, dark, generally at the moment, what gloomy, wet, horrible weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting quite despondent at the moment. So I'm hoping February's going to be the month. February, we're going to go through. We're going to see all this stuff, everything I'm talking about. On the 28th, it's our last date before we move on to our object of the month. Uh, as the sun sets, if you have a peek to the west, and again, be careful because of the sun, it'll burn your eyes, don't look at it. Uh, see if you can spot Venus and Mercury, because they'll be quite close together in the evening sky. You know, Mercury is, is hard to see because, you know, it's so close to the sun. But Venus is quite easy to spot because it's quite bright. So hopefully, you should see a bright Venus and a little Mercury there. In that month, you've seen, you know, quite a few of the planets. There's, what, five, six there that you can see? So that's quite cool. Now, last month was about the moon, wasn't it? We talked all about the moon and bits and bobs you can see on there. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a celestial G as well, wasn't there? I managed to see that, That's actually. It. I went and saw a uh, Brownies group, and it was a clear night. We went out afterwards, and I showed them Orion and all that sort of stuff. And then I remembered, ah, the big G, and I actually pointed out of a green laser. It's actually most of the sky. Did you get to see the Winter Triangle as well, or just the... Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's in between it as well. It's kind of almost in, in between the G. The Winter Triangle's in there. So that's quite cool. So yeah, I managed to go and see it, and I hope you guys did too. This bump's object, it's actually more like four. We're going for four objects, and that's because they're all in the same place, but there is four of them, and it's the main moons of Jupiter. And the reason I chose it this month is because throughout the month, there's quite a few transits. So it's where a moon, a moon either moves in front of the gas giant, or a shadow from the moon goes across the giant as well. So it's actually really good to see. It's something quite interesting. If you've got a telescope, have a look see these things because it almost brings out you know you, you look at it and you think yeah but to see it like that with a shadow being cast onto it you can see the moon and the shadow it almost gives you that 3d you know like you're actually in space looking at yeah a real planet it's really cool so it's going to cast the shadow onto the planet three of the moons are going to do that one of them isn't but we'll go through that anyway and uh as well as them casting the shadows there's also opportunities to get the great red spot in view as well 
whilst the shadow is on the planet. So it makes for a fantastic photo opportunity. If, you've, if you're interested in photography or just fancy a go at it or having a look, why not? It's a cool thing to see, to be able to see the red spot and a shadow of a moon on that planet. It'd be, it'd be brilliant. And I know we're not in the best position to see it, but you should be able to see it with a decent, a half-decent telescope. I mean, even binoculars, you may be able to just make out the little dot, depending on how good it is. Now, we are going to put all of these on our website, which is www.ukastronomy.com under events and then under that object of the month so as you listen you can feel free to pop on there and you can view them as well because there is quite a lot of dates and times for when they start so what we'll do is we'll start on the 6th to the 7th so it's probably the most famous moon of Jupiter it's Europa and it moves in line to cast its shadow on the planet at around 2am to about 4.15am. Now Europa is the smallest of the four, they call them Galilean moons don't they because mm-hmm. they were first discovered by Galileo himself. That was in the 1600s was it? Yeah, 500 years yeah, ago. I yeah, I haven't, I haven't got that written down but I kind of remembered it which is always good for me. Uh, yeah, so Europa is pretty much, it's just an icy moon but it does have the possibility of having an ocean beneath it. You've probably read a lot about that and that there's water, ice, crust, and then underneath they think that, you know, life may be discovered one day, hopefully. Mm -hmm. We we had a chat about that. Did we talk about the other... I think we have spoken a little bit about it. I know John and I have spoken about it. Yeah. um, Because of they want to try and explore Europa. So yeah, if you if you have a look at the actual moon, if you Google it and see what it looks like, I think it's actually it's kind of slightly haunted because it's got a very smooth white sort of face, isn't it? But yeah. then it's got these like almost red scratch marks and scars across its surface. Yeah, it's just really beautiful. It is very beautiful, but uh, yeah, as you say, haunting. Yeah, it's like the, the red on it. You kind of it almost looks like some sort of massive space creature has clawed it mm. <laughs> on its way to us or something. But yeah, if you don't get to see it on that date. There is a, a second better chance to see it, its shadow go on the planet, and that's on the 13th, slightly later, so it's around 4.30 to 7, so it might be getting lighter by then. The shadow's going to be on the planet more than the other one. By they, they do it in degrees or something, don't they? 17 degrees or 21 degrees. Yeah. So it's, it's going it's, to it's still be there, and you'll be able to see it. Uh, the thing is, on the 13th as well, around 6.30 in the morning again, you should see the great red spot actually starting to come into view as well as it spins so you should be able to get hopefully a picture around that time you probably i think it's only about a half hour window by the looks of it to get the red spot and you know the moon and its shadow so that's quite you know everyone loves the red spot that's quite cool so get up a little bit earlier and uh have a look and see if you can see them both if we jump back to the 12th of february so the day before this one you may actually see io's shadow this time so instead of europa they're the two europa dates you can see io and that one on the 12th is around 4 a.m to 6 30 a.m so it's almost like every other night or every night there seems to be the moons are all flying past it at the same time almost and it happens again on the 28th so you've got the 12th and the 28th the 28th one for IO is between 2.30 and 4.45, give or take. I've just kind of rounded it up or down. Uh, with the Great Red Spot again in view at around 3.50 a.m. So almost slap bang in the middle of the transit. So that would be a really good opportunity to see IO's shadow and, you know, get the Great Red Spot in there. Now, IO itself, it's uh, the innermost moon of Jupiter and it's the complete polar opposite of Europa. It's actually the most volcanically active body in the solar system. And it's said to have like hundreds of active volcanoes and lava rivers. And I think they've even said waves, haven't they? I think I read so, somewhere yeah. that they've got lava, actually like lava waves, almost like tsunami 
<laughs> waves of lava. Uh, if you if you look at a picture of it, it actually appears kind of yellow, red, green, and it almost looks like the sulfur lakes on Earth, doesn't it? Yeah, it's very similar. If you look at them, and uh, yeah, I think we spoke about this as well because you know bacteria actually does live there, doesn't it? On Earth, on the sulfur lakes, there's yeah, bacteria does. being found. Yeah, well, we, t- we talked about the, the venting on uh, bottoms of uh, oceans and stuff, which are mm. basically volcanic activity um so yeah it's a similar thing yeah so who knows there might be something there we'll never know until nasa go there and have a peek for us yeah so yeah you can see io and europa and then if we go to the 24th at around 6 a.m this is apparently a rare chance to glimpse the shadow of ganymede uh, it's going to be on the north edge of jupiter so it's only going to kind of go across the north of it and kind of scrape it you will see it go across it's actual shadow this is and the reason it's rare is i think it doesn't actually often get good alignment with no, it for the actual shadow to cast on there it never right. really kind of makes it so there's where it's rare so yeah if you want to see ganymede's shadow why not have a look and just see just, to, just to point out to people that's ganymede and not ganymede okay um. <laughs> ganymede i can spell it for you it's g-a-n-e-y M-E-D-E. And as we know, I'm an amateur astronomer. I'm not a physicist or anything like that. So I kind of, you know, I read the words. I may not be right how I pronounce it. So feel free to correct me all you like. I don't mind the slightest because as far as I'm concerned, I'm learning as much as you guys are. And that's what we're here for. I, I love to learn. I love to find stuff out. And I have actually noticed that people do say things in different ways. They yeah. actually, they, they do. I mean, no one's got an actual correct... It's just the one that most people go for, isn't mm-hmm. it? That's right. Probably the, e- the easiest to say. It's like uh, Beetlejuice, isn't it? The big red star in uh, Orion. A lot of people call it Beetlejuice, but it's meant to be Beetlegeist, isn't it? Or Yeah, Beetlegeese. Yeah. Yeah, Geese, Geist. And I like Beetlejuice just because I was brought up with a film. <laughs> <laughs> it's so like a, that, uh, another one for me is Copernicus. Because yeah. the best way for me to actually remember how to pronounce it is Copernicus. <laughs> that's a whole different kettle of fish right there let's steer away for that one so yeah poor old copernicus uh yeah so ganymede uh, it's the largest moon of jupiter and if you look at it it's kind of gray gray greenish in color mm-hmm. uh it's again it's an icy planet and i think they say that the icy younger bits are kind of the light regions and the darker older bits are kind of crater terrain and bits like that uh it's a lot like europa but apparently it has a really strong magnetic field which is rare for a moon because we know planets have them don't we and jupiter obviously must have a massive one yep but it's saying that this moon actually has a really really strong one and they you know it must have something in the middle of it that's creating this really really strong field Mm -hmm. so I mean, that's three of the moons, and they're all almost completely different. They've all got something different about it. Because back in the, what, the 70s and that, I think it was, when Star Wars came out. Yep. They were saying, and they thought that all the moons were just dead, boring, cold. That was before we launched Voyager, you see. Yeah. Uh, which didn't yeah. get launched until 1977. So yeah, I uh, think that is when Star Wars came out. Isn't yeah, it? it was 77. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember I did a talk about that and I linked the two together and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And yeah, because then George Lucas was obviously talking about you know the moons of Endor and things like that, Forest and uh, moon, having yeah. life. And then suddenly Voyager finds all these crazy moons out there. Yeah, they haven't found any moons that are inhabited by teddy bears yet, though. But not yet, no. But tell my <laughs> wife when they do because she'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that's Jupiter's moon there is Jupiter's other moon uh, Callisto 
but unfortunately it doesn't seem to transit this month but it is known as the dead moon you can still see it orbiting the planet it will be there moving about you just won't see the shadow it's got like an ancient cratered surface so it's actually not a lot seems to be happening there which is why they've called it the dead moon whereas yeah. the others seem to be sort of geologically active don't they in some way that's right so whereas, basically when they say it's ancient craters it just means there hasn't been any activity from asteroids or things hitting it yeah uh, which is very unusual yeah maybe jupiter pulls all the uh the asteroids in now yeah probably who knows yeah so that's that's kind of like what's going on there i mean there was a lot of a lot of dates there and a lot of times but i will write all of them up on the website so you can guys can go out and have a look and see it like that so you can actually look at it rather than just listen to me saying all these dates and times why not just go out for the month and just map the moons of jupiter as they orbit the planet just as galileo did a few you know was it 500 years ago yeah 500 yeah that's what he did he saw it he mapped them he kind of drew them as they moved around each night and figured it out hang on a minute they're moving around the planet they must be moons so you guys can do that as well and get your kids out to do it have a little draw of each one each night that's the end of our objects of the month and as I said all of the stuff can be found on our website which is www.ukastronomy.org with the dates and times so you don't have to worry to remember them all because I, I won't I have to write them down and uh, as always feel free to email us at info at ukastronomy.org or join us on Facebook where there's over 2,000 2,800 members now wow they're nearly we've said that when we get to three thousand we're gonna have to give some sort of prize out. That's that's thanks to Mick Scott. He loves he loves giving out a prize, that man. <laughs> to anyone. He just he's, if you can give out a prize for a reason, he will. So yeah, they're all there to help you with any questions. So thank you, Mark, for having me yet again. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on board, sir. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Awesome. He's been doing a lot of events and things lately. He's, he's just had their, um, what did they call it? They called it Our Marvellous Moon event <laughs> at the Green Dragon Eco Farm in uh, Buckinghamshire. It's just outside my hometown, actually. And Ross came back from that event a bit emotional. And I said, well, what's, what's going on? And he said, some kid at this event said, I can't remember the exact words, but it was along the lines of... If I get to be an astronaut or a scientist, if Ross is still around, I want to come back and tell him that it's all because of him. Oh. So, uh, yeah, you can understand why he got a bit emotional about that. Oh, yeah, I, uh, yes, I do understand that. <laughs> I mean, even if a youngster has listened to this show and, and something we've said or a guest that we've had on the show has inspired them to, to get involved and have a career in, in the sciences or in space or anything that we talk about, then, you know, the work we do here is, is done pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and the same goes for Ross. That's what he lives for is just to get mm -hmm. the word out there and to teach people and uh, when you get feedback like that it makes everything worthwhile definitely that's very cool so yeah uh, Ross has got a few more events coming up all throughout the year he's pretty much booked up most of the year to be honest with you with a little bit of space a little bit of space in April and let me think what that might be for hopefully our Yuri's Night event it's still just uh, on paper at the moment I'm going to be meeting up with him later this month to get the ball rolling properly once we got that 
event under our belt then we can concentrate on future events because we've we've got some ideas for joints uk astronomy stroke tgp nominal events and uh, i'm looking forward to them so when is yuri's night is it always the same date every year it's the or same do you... it, well normally at weekends so it's the nearest okay nearest weekend usually to april the 12th but because what we're aiming at is we're trying to make it family orientated so we can get most amount of kids that we can get at an event Mm -hmm. and this year april the 12th falls right in the middle of the easter break for schools oh there you go you don't have to worry about it being a school night or anything like that so hopefully we can do something with that and get the kids along and get some speakers to come along and there's going to be a bit of a party feel as well towards the end mm-hmm. of the evening and uh, you know food laid on and if anybody wants to talk to us about space and science and things we more than happy to talk to people and it should be fun yeah cool Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So John, another packed show. It's hard to determine how packed it's going to be when it still has lots of editing to go through. Yeah, this is true, but it's always a packed (laughs) show and uh, we needed to get another space episode out the door and that's what we've done this time round. I'm attempting to get a couple more interviews out of the way so that I can put together an episode based around Field of Force Day. Cool. So there's going to be a few good uh, interviews in there, some pre-recorded stuff that we did um, with some of the people that we couldn't interview on the day because it was a bit loud. <laughs> and yeah, it should be fun. There'll be a couple of interviews in there that I think you will enjoy. Oh, really? Well mm. then, you're going to make me wait, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, John, it's amazing having you on the show again. It's been fun having you tolerate me yet again. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, it's always good to have Ross with us, letting us know what's going on up there. And as always, it wouldn't be the same without the listeners. So it's thanks to every one of you out there for listening in. And uh, I hope to speak to you again very soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because... Your input is our output. Or click on the social media icons on the top left of the page at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.
That should be the title for this show. We have oxygen, therefore we have sound.